We're going to be continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning, so I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be finishing out chapter 2 and, uh, Lord willing, beginning chapter 3. If you've got your outline, it'd be helpful for you to take a look there as well. Um, We're going to be looking together at three short accounts in Mark's Gospel where Jesus' ministry and Jesus himself are going to be questioned, both directly and indirectly. And uh, the reason uh, for this questioning is that Jesus' followers were doing or not doing some things that fit with or did not fit with the expectations of what good people would have been doing at that time. What people maybe in good standing with God would or would not have been doing. And what we're going to see is there's, I think, some important application for us as Christians sort of regarding the human tendency towards legalism or self-righteousness that we can consider in light of this. Uh, But I want us, when we're looking at this, we're going to be thinking about the Pharisees this morning. And if you're like me, you have a tendency to look at the Pharisees and think those bad, terrible Pharisees, you know, thank God I'm not like that. I'm on Jesus' team. I wouldn't have been on the Pharisees' team. And what I want us to do on the front end is realize that we have a tendency towards legalism and towards self-righteousness. It's a human thing. And just by way of introduction, I'd like for you to also think that it's not particularly a religious thing, or it's not necessarily a religious thing. It's a human problem. And I was thinking about one of the ways that this is shown in the surrounding culture. And, I mean, my goodness, over the last few years, everything in the world has become politicized, We are a much more polarized people in this nation, at least than I remember uh, in years past. And that's because human nature doesn't change. People look for ways to set themselves apart from others. They look for ways to show and demonstrate that they're on the good side or on the good team. And we need to recognize that as a religious impulse. And I was thinking of a couple of examples of this that I've seen recently. One of those is a yard sign that you may have seen, okay? Maybe you've seen this yard sign. Now, let me just point out, I'm going to show you two things that I think are symbols in our surrounding culture where people identify themselves with ideas or ideology, and by doing so, there can be an element of self-righteousness and self-justification there. Now, don't misunderstand me. That's not necessarily what's happening, okay? Because if you look at some of these statements, you may think, Well, that's fine. I I agree with some of those things. I have a friend uh, who lives in Washington, D.C., and he said that his house is like one of the only houses in the neighborhood that does not have this sign in the yard, and he's worried they're going to burn his house down. Like, that was his joke. Okay? Now, whatever you think about some of these statements, you need to understand that this summation is sort of a creed for secular progressivism. It just is. It's a carrier for a certain ideology, and it's a way when people display this on their lawn or on their Facebook profile or on their Twitter profile, they're saying something. They're defining something about who they are and what they believe, and in many ways, they're defining themselves over and against some other people. We're not like these other people. We believe these things. We're associated with these things. Do not miss the religious element of that. There were a lot of Christians I actually saw when this thing became real who sort of did this and put the Apostles' Creed in there. This is a creed. (laughs) It's really what it is. Look, in this house, we believe. How does the Apostles' Creed begin? We believe in God the Father Almighty. It's a creed. Now, 
that's maybe one side of the political spectrum. I was thinking about another maybe symbol way in the culture that people identify themselves with a certain ideology. Now, irrespective of who you voted for in the last election or what you think about the previous president, you have to recognize that in the surrounding culture, this is way more than a hat and it's way more than a, I just wanted him to win the election. (laughs) It's got a lot more going for it. It's a loaded thing. And when people wear it many times, now there's plenty of people who may just say, well, I supported the last president, so I bought the hat. But there's a lot of other people who they use this as a symbol to show what side they're on to show that they're in with the quote-unquote good side, defining themselves over and against another side. Just see that this is a human tendency within the surrounding culture. It's these, both of these things are ways that people sort of can publicly declare their righteousness or their goodness by separating themselves from the quote-unquote bad people. Now, here's the reality, friends. We're, we're just as prone to these things as anybody else in the surrounding culture because we share the same fallen nature. Now, by God's grace, if we're in Christ, we need not just act like the surrounding culture and fall in with them, but we need to be aware of our tendency towards performative righteousness. That what I do, what I say, who I identify with, that is what makes me quote-unquote good. We are to be different, We are to be associated with people. We are to be associated with an ideology, but more than an ideology, we're to be associated with a person, the Lord Jesus. And what sets us apart should be our relationship to him. We are to then be a loving people rather than an angry or a self-righteous people. And I can put both of those symbols back up there and take you on a tour through social media of both sides of that political, those spectrums. And what you will not see generally is graciousness and love. You will see anger and you will see self-righteousness and you will see the otherizing of people. One of the reasons we need to think about this is because what we're going to be looking at this morning is Jesus facing opposition from legalistic people, from self-righteous people who externalize their self-righteousness and that's how they set themselves apart from others and they're very upset that Jesus doesn't do that in the same ways that they do. And that creates conflict. So our key point this morning, although Jesus faced increased opposition from religious leaders, he refused to affirm or live in accord with their traditions and instead called all to live worshipfully as those who recognize that they have been served by God. That's one of the things that we're going to see. Jesus recognizes and what he's, comp- what he's teaching in the things that he says and does is that God has served people. God has done what man could not do for themselves. Rather than working for God's favor, Jesus has come to bestow God's favor because of who he is. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, and then we'll work our way through these sections. Father, I'm thankful to be together with your people this morning, and I'm thankful uh, to be able to read your word with them and press into it. And I pray, Father, that you would guide us this morning by your spirit, and that, Father, in doing so, we would love the Lord Jesus more and see ourselves more in union with him and our lives in light of who he is. So we give you thanks for your word given to us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What I want to do is work through these three sections, and we'll read them individually and go through them. Again, what's happening here is in Mark's gospel, what Mark is doing is he's now showing us opposition building against Jesus. That's what we're going to see in these three accounts as sort of a progression of people turning against Jesus, specifically the religious leaders. So let's begin by looking at Mark chapter 2. And let's start, our first section is going to be Jesus' question about fasting, verses 18 through 22. I'll read this section and then we'll work our way through it. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, this first section, if you'll notice, it begins with a question. It's a question. These folks come and they speak to him. Now, it doesn't identify the Pharisees as saying this. In fact, it's probably not the Pharisees. It's, it's people who are following Jesus and are recognizing what's going on in their midst. Okay, Jesus, uh, we don't really know when this is, and this is important because, remember, Mark is not so much concerned with doing things chronologically. He's pulling some things together for the purpose of showing who Jesus is. So he pulls these three accounts together. The, the next two that we're going to see, they actually occur further on in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. Mark pulls them all together here. So what we've got here is a question, a seemingly genuine question that these people are asking. They're looking around, they see the followers of John the Baptist, they see the followers of the Pharisees, and these two groups are fasting. Now, fasting at this time, especially in Jesus' day, it was, a, it was associated with the recognition of sin. It was also associated with petitioning for God's favor. And one of the things you saw is that certain uh, religious subgroups, and particularly the most devout followers of these groups, they would fast multiple times a week. Uh, particularly among the Pharisees, there was the fasting twice a week, and it may have been one of these regular days of fasting that these people look around and they see Jesus' disciples eating, and the other followers of John and the Pharisees, they are not fasting. And so this question comes, why don't your disciples fast? And if you think about it then, the people are looking and they say, well, these rigorous followers of the Pharisaical tradition, they're fasting. These followers of John, who's kind of an ascetic, strange guy, but clearly from the Lord, they're fasting. And then there's Jesus who's doing all these miracles and teaching, and yet his disciples aren't fasting. It's a question of devotion. Um, that, that's really what you see. At some point in his ministry, some of the people from the region ask him about the devotional practices of his followers as compared to those of John the Baptist and of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus clearly had nothing against fasting. He himself, we have the account of him fasting. But what we need to see is that these people are asking, really, do your, are your guys not as devoted as these other people? Are they not as religious and fervent in what they believe as these other followers, these other subgroups? And so what we see is that Jesus responds to them. And Jesus' response, I think, is really telling. His response illustrated that his followers were intentionally 
and of necessity set apart from all the others. This is the imagery that he uses. He gives three illustrations here. He uses wedding imagery and then he uses imagery from sort of everyday life that would have taught people and explained to them why it is that his disciples do not fast. The wedding imagery, is, it's really significant because it's so culturally relevant to these folks. Weddings are a big deal here, but they were an incredibly big deal in the first century, especially within Jewish culture. It was an event for the entire community to come together in celebration. As I've been reading this, and also my family's been watching the show The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen those. And I'm like, man, these people sit down to dinner. They laugh. They do all sorts of things. And it's made me think, especially with their weddings, we got to jazz up the weddings. Okay, so I don't know who's getting married next. So a few of you are potentially candidates in the next few years. Let's go big. Okay, let's enjoy ourselves. Um, We should. We should celebrate. So Jesus' point in referencing this is the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist, they're fasting. It's associated with repentance and, and sadness, grieving sin, and petitioning God's favor. And Jesus uses this wedding imagery to say, is that the type of wedding you want to go to? Can you imagine a wedding like that? And maybe you've been to some weddings like that, where there's sadness that characterizes the experience. There should be joy in a wedding, There should be excitement. And so Jesus makes the, it's a very culturally relevant illustration. But it also is connected, that imagery is associated with certain promises in the Old Testament. Oh, sorry, we're we're in Galilee. We're probably back in Capernaum or we're going to get there soon. So this is, remember, where Jesus is. Oh, forgot to show you pictures. Galilee, it's pretty. Okay, but the, the, the verse I want you to see here from Isaiah 60, verses four and five. Imagery from the Old Testament, wedding imagery. You shall no more be termed forsaken. This is the Lord speaking about Israel. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices of the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. This is intentional imagery that's saying something about himself. Who is the, he uses his imagery for himself as the bridegroom. It's another one of those things for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. For the scribes, for the Pharisees, to recall things from the Old Testament. It's Jesus subtly speaking about who he is. He uses a cultural illustration, but he's slipping in something about who he is as well. And he's doing it in order that they would see that God himself has come. The promises of the Old Testament are about to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's what he's come to do. And so how can his disciples fast? How can they fast for their sins and weep over them when the one who's come to deal with the problem of sin is there in their presence? How can they fast to petition petition the favor of God when the favor of God is being shown to them by God himself in their midst in human form? It will not fit. Jesus is not allowing his disciples to fast because it's, it's an intentional thing to set them apart. Jesus is showing in who he is and yet he he anticipates his death because he says there will be a time for them to fast, but not while the bridegroom is with them. Then he gives two other illustrations, illustrations that you are well aware of if you've been to vacation Bible school or been in church any period of time. The imagery of sewing cloth, new cloth, a bit of cloth on an old garment, that when it's washed, it'll tear away, it'll rip the garment. He then gives the illustration of the new wine in old wineskins, not to get too far into the process of making wine, but these are wine skins. Um, they would, th- what they would do is they would first do a, f- 
when you're fermenting something, especially a beverage like this, there's multiple stages of fermentation. The first one usually happens in a big vat, and that's what they did, but then they would transfer it to something like um, what, we, what you see here, a wineskin. Okay? Nowadays, they do it in a big vat and transfer it to a barrel. It was done here in leather skins. What would happen, though, is that if you put that wine in, as it ferments, gas comes from it. It expands. So if you put the wine in an old wineskin, think of it as leather. I mean, if you have an old baseball glove or something like that, or old work gloves, and they get that crusty feel. The images of pouring this new wine in a skin like that, if it begins to ferment, it's going to burst. Here's the point. Jesus is using those two illustrations to say something about the vitality of what's happening here. The, uh, there's a, a little quote there from R.T. France from his commentary on Mark. He says, The old skins and old garments are, in the narrative context, the structures of religious or religious tradition as represented especially by the Pharisees and their scribal teaching. Whether in their theology, the forgiveness of sin, or in the practice, their purity of table fellowship. Think about all the things that Jesus has already been dealing with with the Pharisees. He's making the point that what he's coming to do, what he's teaching in bringing the kingdom of God near, it's incongruent with the Pharisees' traditions. It's incongruent with their understanding of things. Jesus is bringing a new vitality to the experience of knowing God and living in accord with what God was doing in Christ. It wouldn't, to do that, it would not be compatible with the old. Here's our key point. The coming of Messiah had brought about a radical change in the relationship between God and his people and how they conducted themselves in the world was to evidence that new reality. Jesus' disciples, in being joyous, in not fasting and lamenting over their sins continually and petitioning God's favor, they're set apart because Jesus is doing something new. They are the recipients of his mercy and of his goodness. Their celebration and joy rather than sorrow and fasting shows their relationship with God. And this is what's amazing. In their mind, the truly zealous were the most focused on lament and all of these things and fasting and asceticism and all of this. What Jesus is showing is that in him, the truly zealous are the most joyous. It's a key thing that sets his followers apart. His followers are restored. They've been restored in their relationship to God. So you begin, you get this initial, this question here in this first account. Now we're going to transition from questioning to accusation. And you're going to see the Pharisees very specifically accusing Jesus here. Look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 2. Let me read verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abitar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath." So what we've got here, they're, they're speaking to him and there's an accusation, but at this point it's sort of an indirect accusation. In light of his disciples picking these grains to eat, the Pharisees questioned whether he approved such unlawful behavior. Do you see what they do? They look at him, they say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees clearly seem to be traveling along with them. 
Now, no one in this day questioned that the Sabbath was to be a holy day. I mean, if you did, you were essentially alienating yourself from the people of Israel. There were Jews who didn't keep the Sabbath, but they were treated as Gentiles. What you need to understand is no one debated that the Sabbath was supposed to be a holy and set-apart day. They also didn't really debate that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. Okay, in Exodus, it makes that very clear. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? Because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and then on the seventh day he rested. So no one's questioning this, but what what is majorly questioned and debated is what defines work. Now, in Scripture, there are some examples in the Old Testament of things. There's some illustrations of what defined work, but it wasn't exhaustive. So they know that they're not supposed to do any work, but then tradition develops, especially in the intertestamental period. The rabbis, they begin writing these additional laws and descriptions of like, well, what really is work? What constitutes work? What are the things you can and cannot do? Also, what are some things that sort of get around the law? What are some things you can do? Because, I mean, can you deliver a baby on the Sabbath? That seems like work. Well, they would say, yes, of course. The goal of the Sabbath is to produce life in, God, in people, and so, yes, you would be able to do that. But they also created workarounds for things. For example, in some of the rabbinic writings, it would say that a man couldn't uh, remove, like, a sheath or something. They couldn't do work, remove things. But if he had a common useful utensil that he could place upon something, he could then get that utensil and move the other thing together. See how it's sort of a workaround? You'll see this if you go to Israel or if you go to a place where you have Orthodox Jewish populations. They've updated, a lot of these writings are found in what's called the Mishnah. And uh, it's, a, it's based a lot on Pharisaical tradition and things like that. But now they've got to deal with issues like electricity. And I've told this story before, but in Austria, in a part of downtown Vienna, there was an Orthodox population, and I was down there on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath, and one of the things, they, one of their traditions now is that you can't make electricity happen. Like, you can't push a button that makes electricity happen. So what they'll do is they'll go and they'll stand by the elevator for the subway, and they'll just stand there, and they'll wait for some Gentile to come and push the button, because you're going to hell anyway, and so it doesn't matter. So push the button, and if I push the, I did, like I went there, and I thought the elevator was broken, he was just standing there, and then I realized nobody had pushed the button, so I pushed it, and then I got on, and then he got on, and I didn't realize what was happening, I had to ask somebody later, like what was going on, and it's because he's not causing the electricity, so he's not breaking the Sabbath. He's taking advantage of me breaking the Sabbath, but he's not breaking the Sabbath. There were a lot of laws that were like that. So this issue of whether Jesus whether Jesus' disciples, first of all, there's a question, are they actually even breaking the law here? Depending on which rabbi you would have looked at, maybe yes, maybe no. Notice how Jesus doesn't engage in a debate about rabbis and their traditions. He simply goes to the Old Testament and he gives this example from the Old Testament. He says, he, he, he goes to a similar incident in the scriptures, your, your bullet point there, that involved David. David, at one time in the Old Testament, was on the run for his life. He's getting away from Saul and he comes to the house of the Lord. He comes to where the tabernacle is and he's hungry, he and his companions, and they eat the bread that's set apart only for the priests. Now, Jesus presents this to them. He also, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew points out that Jesus also says, I mean, the priests break every single Sabbath. They're performing sacrifices and doing other things on the Sabbath. 
So the point that Jesus is making here is he's getting them to recognize a scriptural example whereby there are some who had the authority to do what would bring life and what would bring honor to God and what would bring true worship to God even if it was technically breaking the Sabbath law. The goal of the law was to give life. Look at this from Deuteronomy. Moses speaking to Israel. He said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children so that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. The goal of the law was to be life. It was not to bring death, it was to bring life. Ultimately, it was to bring joy and worship and all of these things to God's people. And so David, what we see in some sense, breaks the letter of the law, but a lot of that is associated, is author- he has an authority to do it because of who he is. He's anointed by God as the king. And so that it's interesting that there is a, ki- a person who is a king who in a sense has the authority to have, to in a sense break the law in order that a higher principle of the law comes in, that life is to be given, life is preserved. David is running for his life, he and his friends, and they eat together. Then also with the priest, the priests break the law, every, or they transgress the Sabbath every single Sabbath in doing the work of the priest. So you have a kingly picture, a priestly picture. And Jesus then asserts his own authority Look at what he says. Jesus then authoritatively proclaimed the true purpose of the Sabbath and his own lordship over it. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees had structured so much of their religious life around obedience to the Sabbath law as expressed in their traditions. So much so they missed the true intent of the Sabbath. It was lost to them. They made the Sabbath an end unto itself. Keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Do not break the Sabbath. And they miss its intention. I love this from Alfred Edersheim. In its spiritual and eternal element, the Sabbath law embodied the two thoughts of rest and worship, and worship which pointed to rest. The keeping of the seventh day and the Jewish mode of its observance were temporal and outward, were the temporal and outward form in which these eternal principles were presented. The goal of the Sabbath was that they would stop working and trust God. That they would rest in God's provision for them. And this set them apart from the other nations whose gods had to be appeased and fed and cared for and all these things. There was no rest for those people. Israel was to recognize that they were the people of the one true God who sought to bless his people. Whose people could actually trust him to care for them so much so that they could take a day away from work and focus just on him, worshiping him, knowing him. Here's the key point. As Messiah, Jesus was the greater David who had come to bring the promised Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's the greater David. If David can do this, then Jesus, who himself as God instituted the Sabbath, can also do this. Look at uh, David Garland, he's good on this. He says, if the strict regulations regarding the bread of the presence could be set aside for David, who was fleeing for his life, how much more can holy regulations be set aside for Jesus and his companions, who is in a situation of far greater urgency in proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God? Jesus declared, and you can imagine, can you imagine what the Pharisees' response to this is? to this man saying that he's Lord of the Sabbath, even the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. 
You can imagine how it affected them, and so we see this as we transition. They go from, it goes from genuine question amongst the people, then it goes to sort of indirect accusation, and now they're looking for a direct way to accuse him. That's what we see here as we transition to the first part of chapter 3. Let me read verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, har- to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Here, in all likelihood, we're back in Capernaum. I've showed you a picture of the synagogue. Here's kind of our picture that we've used of sort of like an illustration of what it would have looked like in the first century, the synagogue holding a central place within the community. Here are the ruins of that synagogue, and several of you, after I showed these pictures, recalled being there. Um, To give you an idea of its size, here's sort of an overview. You see people. It's not the biggest thing you've ever seen, about the size of a tennis court, roughly, this, the, this, would, this is not the actual, these stones are from another place, but the, the foundation stones of the synagogue were the actual foundation at the time of Jesus. Okay, this just gives you an idea of the place where we are on this Saturday at the synagogue meeting. The Pharisees are already there, okay? This is a subsequent Sabbath. Uh, it seemed, maybe it's the next Sabbath, but the Pharisees come to the synagogue and they're looking for an opportunity to accuse him. Now, healing on the Sabbath is very interesting because just like there were laws about work on the Sabbath, healing or medical care on the Sabbath, there were also a whole lot of laws about that. For example, you could take some internal medicines on the Sabbath as long as that medicine didn't do anything to you. So like if you take a medicine that makes you sick in order to purge something, that was considered work. Okay, but if you took something for a sore throat or if you took medicine that was to treat an illness that could potentially lead to death, you were allowed to do that. What you couldn't do was apply like topical things. So internal medicine was a little bit more kosher on the Sabbath than doing anything, applying anything topically. Okay, that was considered work. What's interesting here then is that Jesus in dealing with this situation they are waiting for him to break, a sa- break the Sabbath. They think he's going to do something, and they're probably thinking about the past. They're probably thinking about what he's done. Recall uh, that maybe in some of his other healings, he's touched people, okay? He's done things like that. But here he is on a Sabbath in the synagogue, and maybe they're waiting to see what he's going to, whether he's going to heal. Now, Jesus is aware of what they're doing, okay? Jesus is, is aware of what's going on, and he looks around, the question here, Jesus' question to them, and, and look at what he says. He says, um, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And this, is a, this actually recalls rabbinic tradition where they said on the Sabbath you could do work that was to give life or to save life. Again, I mentioned that you could deliver babies on the Sabbath. Okay? You could take medicine. You could help treat people who were injured, things like that on the Sabbath because you were, it was a higher thing of preserving life. And yet what we see here is they're looking to accuse him. His question to them and his act of mercy towards the man, they're intended ultimately to highlight for all of them the true purpose of the Sabbath. 
And the question puts them in a dilemma. I mean, he says, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? I mean, how do you answer that question if you're the Pharisees? If you say to do good, then what he's doing is just fine and you can't accuse him. And if you say to do evil, all the people in the synagogue are going to turn around and look at you because that's certainly not what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. So it's, a, it's one of the things Jesus does where he poses a question that puts them in a difficult place, but he's doing so in order that they would be introspective, that they would think about what all is going on. What we see, though, is that they refuse, their refusal to recognize the good work of God in their midst. It elicits an emotional response from Jesus, and that further demonstrates the increasing tensions between them. It says that he's angered. He looks around at, he looks around at them with anger. How can you not answer this question? How can you not answer whether it's lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? It's not a hard question to answer, and they should all have known the answer. And yet, I was thinking about this, the word that we translate anger, it's used all throughout the New Testament for God's wrath. And yet what we see here is that it's not Jesus' purpose to be wrathful towards them because then it continues and it said that he was deeply grieved by their hardness of heart. There's a, they, they are not willing to speak the truth because their hearts are hardened and that grieves Jesus. It carries the idea of deep sympathy and I think he looks at them and he sees they're missing out on the joy and blessing of what the Sabbath is intended to be. They're missing out on that because of their hardness of heart. And their response, the response of the Pharisees to this miracle, it just demonstrates the extent of their hardness of heart. They go out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. Now, you may see that and you're like, okay, they're just plotting together to go kill Jesus. But that's if you don't know who the Herodians were. The Herodians were very secular Jews who were defined primarily by their politics, the supporting of the Herodian dynasty. At this point, it's a guy named Herod Antipas that we're going to see in a few chapters is going to be the one who kills John the Baptist, orders the execution of John the Baptist. It's possible that the execution of John the Baptist has already occurred when this happens, which is maybe why the Pharisees go to conspire with them because they're saying, look, Jesus is kind of like John. You guys executed John. This guy's bad too. And what it shows then is the Pharisees are looking for various ways to get at him. Maybe they've missed the chance here with him breaking a religious law. Let's see if we can get these political leaders to think of him as a troublemaker, causing political division and things like that. The point being that the Pharisees and the Herodians did not like each other and didn't do much together. But I need you to see that the Pharisees, in their anger towards Jesus and their refusal to see the joy and peace and goodness and newness of what he's bringing, they are forced together with people that they would never associate with over and against what God is doing in their midst. That's what hardness of heart does. Here's the key point. As Messiah, Jesus has come to exercise his authority for the good of his people in order that they might experience the promised restoration that the observance, the observance of the Sabbath anticipated. Jesus is exercising his authority for the good of his people. He has come to serve the people. They think they are serving God by holding to their traditions and not breaking the Sabbath. And they're missing that the whole point of the Sabbath is that God serves his people. He blesses his people. He does for his people what they cannot do for himself. Love this from Alfred Edersheim. I, I know I've hawked this book to you a bunch of times, but if you do not own The Life and Times of Jesus of the Messiah, please get it. It's fantastic. 
You're not going to sit down and read it all the way through, but when you're looking at accounts within the Gospels, it's such a wonderful little addendum. It's not a commentary per se. It's sort of telling you the story of what the Gospels are doing. It's tracking Jesus' life and ministry and filling in a lot of the cultural gaps, and then you just get gold like this from Edersheim. The Savior had broken their Sabbath law, and yet he had not broken it. For neither by remedy nor touch nor outward application had he healed him. He had broken the Sabbath rest as God breaks it, when he sins or sustains or restores life or does good, all unseen and unheard, without touch or outward application, by the word of his power and by the presence of his life. The legalistic Pharisees, with their self-righteous works of the law, had missed the purpose of the Sabbath. Rather than resting worshipfully and joyfully in God, they had separated themselves, and they'd separated themselves from others through their focus on themselves and their works. As a result, they found themselves opposed to the giver of Sabbath rest, opposed to the one who gave them the Sabbath himself. And also, they refused the true work of restoration that he's doing in their midst. They become those who oppose the true giver of Sabbath rest and the true one who has come to do work among them. That is the danger of self-righteousness. We don't, this is gonna, we're gonna come back to this theme over and over again, and Jesus is gonna point it out in and amongst the Pharisees in numerous places in the gospel. So we don't have time to get to concluding thoughts, but let me just say this. Self-righteousness is so dangerous and deceptive because it places the focus on us. It inverts what is true. It makes, it makes the Christian life or it makes life in the world about us and the things we do rather than about God and what God has done. That's exactly what the Pharisees had done. They missed the purpose of the Sabbath because they said they were thinking the Sabbath was an end unto itself, that they needed to do, 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 do. And the focus was on what God had done, inviting them to rest. And so brothers and sisters this morning, as we've had our time focusing on the work of the Lord Jesus for us, the invitation to fellowship is an invitation to rest, to find true rest in Christ. May God, by his grace, encourage us with these things and show us the rest that is ours in Christ, the confidence that we can have in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your word here and these accounts. Father, when we see the Lord Jesus dealing with opposition even, but doing so with frustration, even anger, and yet with sympathy. Father, would you guard us from being self-righteous, from projecting self-righteousness to others? Lord, when we understand who we are apart from Christ, and yet what he has done for us, and who we are now in him, our response to your grace is to be gracious people, And so, Father, I pray that for us. I pray that we would be a church of grace, that we would be people of grace. And so as we are out in the surrounding culture, as we have our differences with people, that we can connect with them and show love towards them, show the love of Jesus towards them, inviting them to know him as Savior and Lord, to find true rest in him. Guard our hearts, Lord, from seeking to self-justify in the things of this world. 
May we find our rest and our hope and our identity in Christ alone. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.